Michael Ostrunk here with Colonel Douglas McGregor. How you doing, Doug? Good, good. Welcome back. Thank you. So you recently had a piece on BreakingDefense.com on Putin rebuilding the Russian military while U.S. strategy is all over the map. Very interesting piece. Um, what I'd like you to do is kind of give us an overview of what Putin is doing in terms of uh, military strategy and allocating resources, and then compare it to our recent efforts on the Obama administration. Well, I think it's important for your listeners to keep in mind that World War II in the West ended in May of 1945, but World War II in Eastern Europe did not end until 1989. And the reason I bring that up is that the world that Putin grew up in, the world in which he was socialized, if you will, is the post-war world of Soviet or Russian conquest of half of Europe. When World War II ended, we controlled half of Europe. The other half fell under Stalin and communism and Russia. So with Mr. Putin, you have someone who is both a great Russian nationalist and a former communist, a former Stalinist, if you will, who came up through the KGB. He sees the world through the eyes of the generation that lived in the aftermath of World War II and in what he perceived to be this wonderful world that was conquered and occupied by Russia. This world fell apart in 1989. Russia itself fell apart, the Soviet Union did. Well, most of the territories that were formerly under Russian czarist control and subsequently Soviet control became independent, not all, but most. And he has been essentially pushing back against this tide of history almost from the moment that he became president of the Soviet Union. So when he becomes the head of state and effectively the, the political leader of the country, his goal, to the extent that he thinks he can do it, is to restore the glory of this nation of which he is a part, to relive the past, if you will, or reenact it in some way. And that's the principal driving force behind what's happening today in eastern Ukraine. You talk about Putin and his military strategy, and you, you ask and answer you ask, and he answers three questions over time. Where do we fight? Whom do we fight? And how do we fight? How does, he, how does Putin answer those questions? Well, those are the critical questions of all national military strategy, which we as Americans have almost continually resisted answering because we, we like to be able to go anywhere we like and do as we like without necessarily constraining ourselves to what I would call tangible concrete interests. Maritime powers can do that to some extent. Continental powers cannot. Mr. Putin controls a nation that borders 17 other countries. Uh, he's, in a, he's in the largest country in the world in terms of landmass, but his population is only about 140 to 160 million, depending upon how you want to count it. Uh, Central Asia is of a absolutely inestimable importance to him because those areas which were formerly part of the Golden Horde, the Mongol hordes that conquered European Russia in the Middle Ages, those places are still closely associated with him, and both he and the Chinese share an interest in ensuring that those places do not become a threat to either China or Russia. And thus far he's been very successful, and in fact the leaders of those countries are very dependent upon him because they are all determined to suppress Sunni Islam and Islamism, which has been on the rise, obviously, since 2001, actually since the wall came down. 
so that's one aspect of his strategy, but his more immediate concern right now is Russia's internal weakness, its demographic decline, its economic weakness, particularly the decline in the oil and gas market, uh, a huge effort, but also the hemorrhage of talent out of the country. So he's passed very stringent laws to keep human capital in Russia, to prevent people who are educated, thoughtful, intelligent, ambitious from leaving. He's having some success in that regard. At the same time, he's watching Ukraine, which is a Slavic country, with a long history of association with Russia, go its own way effectively, walk west, which is a horrifying prospect for him because they are Slavs. He has this birth rate problem, and he would like to have as many Slavs as possible inside Russia. But there's another issue for him. He talks a great deal about NATO and NATO's threat. I doubt seriously that he's worried about NATO attacking Russia. All he has to do is look to the West and look at the countries that border his, and he knows that they're all weak uh, and incapable of presenting any sort of threat to him. But I think he's very worried about Western culture, Western influence, Western civilization touching Russia, which has managed over the centuries to insulate itself. Uh, that's his great strength on, on one hand, that he can insulate himself, but it's also his weakness. So Ukraine presents a threat if it becomes an extension of the West and touches his country uh, in a way that would in, in essentially influence his own cultural and economic and political development. So when he looks at well, who's he going to have to fight, he looks West and he says, I'm going to have to fight these people because I have to regain the old borders. I have to push further West, all the way into Western Ukraine, so that I'm creating this buffer between the West and me. You're talking about someone who thinks much more in territorial terms than in modern terms. In the modern world, we would think in terms of cybersecurity and communications and information sharing. Uh, he, he thinks that he can control some of that, and he's already demonstrated his control of the media inside the state that he can profoundly influence public opinion. Public opinion is really with Mr. Putin inside Russia. So I think he's more concerned right now about the territorial aspects which is very Stalinist, frankly, almost 19th century, but it's there. And uh, as uh, you know, the czars used to say, everyone sleeps uh, comfortably in Petersburg, which used to be Leningrad, if Finland is occupied by Russians. Well, he has a similar sort of view. Uh, we in Russia will sleep more comfortably while white Russia and Ukraine are, is, uh, are both occupied by Russians. So in his mind, that's part of the whom do you fight. The other area that he fears and worries a great deal about uh, is the East, and specifically Japan. Remember that Japan and Russia fought previously, and on the occasions where they met at sea uh, in 1904-1905, the Russians came off very poorly. The Russians have never forgotten that. Remember there's a racial aspect to this sort of thing. The Russians border Asia in a way that we do not. They have millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people on their borders who are fundamentally not Slavic and not European. They like to think of themselves as superior to those neighbors, but the truth is they haven't been for a very long time, and they are not now. So part of his military focus is also to constrain, deter, and if necessary, to defeat Japan. If you look at the numbers of intrusions into Japanese airspace of the last two or three years, the numbers from the Chinese side are minimal compared with the number of intrusions from Russia. And he has essentially been bullying to the extent that he can from the background 
the Japanese. The Japanese have reached out to him. They've tried to come to arrangements with him because they like their islands back in the Kurils. And he's made it abundantly clear that not only will they not get them back, but he is fortifying them, militarizing them, and making it clear that he's quite prepared to attack Japan if the Japanese decide to follow through on reacquiring their islands. At the same time, he's buried the hatchet with China to the extent that he's able, but he also knows that the Chinese are not going to cross thousands of miles of desert and mountain in western China to invade Russia. So he's not terribly concerned about them in a security sense. The Chinese have lots of cash, he's got lots of resources and minerals and gas and oil, and so for the moment it's kind of a marriage made in heaven. But it's also again another admission of weakness, because Russia hasn't developed a scientific industrial base to really be competitive, and it hasn't built that human capital pool that it needs to manage that scientific industrial base. Is Japan actually militarily threatening to Russia at this point? The fact is that Japan has the potential almost overnight to become a, a, a military superpower, and the Russians know it. Uh, the Japanese have now passed modifications to the constitution that allow them to commit their forces. Japan views us as a power in decline, to be blunt, and they perceive the requirement for them to assert themselves to defend themselves. They're not terribly worried about China from a military standpoint. They do worry about it economically, because historically China has been the center of economic development in Asia, and the Chinese are trying in, in various ways to reestablish the Sino-centric economic order. But Japan is most concerned militarily about the Russians and the ability of the Russians to threaten them. And at the same time, the Japanese and Koreans, to a lesser extent the Chinese, also have interests in eastern Siberia. That's where the minerals are, that's where the resources are, that's where the land is. They are leasing vast stretches of territory to grow food. And the Russians are, are, are going along with this to a limited extent, but they fear that at, one, at some point they're going to be invaded and lose eastern Siberia. And this has always been a Russian fear ever since they conquered eastern Siberia 300 years ago because they'd never been able to populate it with Russians. And right now there are more Japanese, Koreans, Mongols, Turks, and Chinese in eastern Siberia than there are Russians. So he's worried militarily about Japan and its capabilities in the east, and he's worried about the west, and of course he obsesses over Germany. And he understands that if he is going to be successful in regaining his former border in the West and pushing further West, that Germany must be a partner. And so he's doing everything he can to cultivate the Germans and at the same time to split Germany away from the rest of Europe. It hasn't worked very well thus far. And in fact, the opposite is, is occurring inside the German population. Despite our many foolish and stupid actions lately, the Germans are alarmed. Uh, by his behavior in eastern Ukraine. Perhaps not as alarmed as the Poles, Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, Finns, and so forth, but nevertheless alarmed. So when you say, whom do we fight? It's primarily the Japanese on one end, and secondarily the Europeans, the East Europeans, the Germans, and potentially us on the other side. And how, do, how is he going to fight? Where is he going to fight? Where is obvious? East and West. He doesn't expect to have to cope with a major military threat in Central Asia, and I think he's right. He's, he's always going to have sort of a low-level terrorist problem there, but nothing that threatens to destroy Russia, per se. And then the question is, how does he fight? And this is something that's much easier for him, to be blunt, than it is for us. 
And again, your listeners may or may not know a great deal about the Second World War and about Russia in general, but the Second World War had a, a shaping impact on Russian military thinking in ways that no other war in their history has. Remember that Russia has always had to maintain large forces, large armies, because it's surrounded by potential adversaries and enemies. Remember that for 300 years, they were a tributary state of the Mongol hordes. So that's 300 years effectively being ruled by people who are fundamentally different from you. Whenever the Russian princes would visit the Mongol Khan once a year to pay their taxes, uh, they had to go out and feed the Khan's horses, personally feed them. That was to demonstrate that they were lowly servants of the great Khan. This went on for 300 years, but it, it's burned into the memory of the Russians. So the fear of the East, the fear of the Japanese is also bound up to some extent with this fear that goes all the way back to the Mongols. But to defeat their enemies, starting with the Mongols, they had to create this highly centralized state. In other words, a state that in many ways rested on the foundation of oriental despotism, much like the enemy that they had to vanquish the Mongols. This state reaches a new height under Stalin in, in terms of its inhumanity, its brutality, and its intrusiveness. This state then produces a military establishment during World War II that creates a unity of effort on a national, strategic, as well as operational level beyond our comprehension. Example. It took Eisenhower something like nine or ten months as the theater commander in Western Europe before we landed at Normandy to negotiate an arrangement with the U.S. Air Forces to bomb targets that he deemed appropriate and important for the Normandy landings. In other words, Eisenhower could not simply direct his air forces and his air forces would not respond, despite the fact that he was, at least in theory, the theater commander. This is very much an American problem that persists into the present. We have four separate services. They are not unified in a command sense. And they do not respond to unified command because each service has its own way of doing business, its own way of war. It has its own budget. Each service prepares its own budget. So the Secretary of Defense and the President of the United States end up refereeing the services. That's not the case in Russia. Mr. Putin inherited a military establishment with this history of unity of command. And so he immediately reinvigorated the high command, the Stavka, which was the center of Stalin's war effort. This is the brain trust, where the best and the brightest in the Soviet armed forces used to be assigned, and now it's the best and the brightest of the Russian armed forces. He immediately cleaned house in the Stavka and in the entire Russian general staff and brought up younger men who then went through special training courses and were selected for special abilities, special backgrounds, special talents, special insights. This collection of human capital at the top of the Russian armed forces is very impressive. And they began the process in 2004-2005 of systematically reorganizing and reforming the armed forces. His focus, for obvious reasons, was first and foremost the army because they're a land power. But in order to reform and reorganize it, he had to dramatically shrink it. So it went from 2 million down to about 800,000. And that 800,000 man force right now has been through dramatic change. Uh, he's eliminated command echelons. He's organized new kinds of battle groups of about 6,000 men, each one under generals. He now reports to three-star headquarters. But like the Soviet army of the Second World War, 
it's not just the Soviet army that that three-star commands within that region, within that area of influence, within that area of responsibility where he has ground forces, he also commands the air forces, the rocket forces, all of the other operational and strategic forces that can be brought to bear against the enemy. So as an example, during World War II, there was a, an event in uh, June, July 1944, during a major offensive against the Germans, when the Soviets finally succeeded in isolating and surrounding 50,000 German troops. Marshal Zhukov, who was commanding the offensive, then turned to his Air Force commander and said, I want every aircraft available to attack and bomb those 50,000 German forces. Fifteen minutes later, over the battlefield appeared 5,000 Russian Soviet fighters. Those forces were largely annihilated from the air. Such a thing was impossible in the Western military. It was also impossible in the German military, and it is impossible today in the United States military. So when you talk about the three questions, whom do we fight, he's principally concerned in the West with Eastern Europe, Germany, and us. In the East, he's concerned primarily about Japan, uh, and only secondarily about the possibility of future friction with China or Korea. How, where does he fight? It's obvious in the East, it's in the West. And how do we fight? It's a unified military command structure that exerts absolute unity of effort across service lines to bring to bear all the power at his disposal, wherever he wants it, whenever he wants it. That is a, 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 a point of view to, to lead from in your critique of the recently released document from the Obama administration on, on America's new national security strategy. And you're very critical of it from that perspective, um, that we do not have unity of command, we're too top-heavy, et cetera, et cetera. Can you both lay out some more of your critique of our uh, organizing structure and strategy and where you'd go if you, you know, had a magic wand and you could make things different? Well, first, let's be frank. I, I don't think that the United States has, any, has had any sort of coherent national military strategy for some time. Certainly not since the end of the Cold War in 1989, when the Soviet state collapsed, the notion of containment was gone. Uh, even though at the point where it collapsed, we had moved well beyond containment, but nevertheless, containment remained a sort of organizing strategic imperative. Uh, since 1989, we've had a series of administrations who essentially treated the armed forces as uh, instruments of opportunity. Uh, where, where can we engage, first under George W. Bush to implement our quote-unquote New World Order, well, that, without necessarily ever having explained to anybody what the New World Order was, and of course we now chuckle over it because it went nowhere, but nevertheless his uh, Desert Storm experience convinced him and the people that followed him that they had an instrument that they could use wherever they liked, whenever they liked, to impose their will. His successors then looked for opportunities to essentially engage in social experimentation and social change overseas on the model of what they think they had been doing since the 60s inside the United States. So we used military power, for instance, in, in Haiti. That was an enormous failure. Haiti is a catastrophe, tragically. The Haitian people are no better off. Many would say even worse off today. Uh, Somalia, we don't need to go back over Somalia. We know what happened in Somalia. That was a disaster. And I pointed out a uh, partial launching point Absolutely, absolutely. Because when we've intervened, we, we have always failed to appreciate unanticipated consequences. 
what uh, what people in the business world talk about market externalities the things that happen that you don't anticipate over which you don't have much control and we cultivated new enemies we went into bosnia herzegovina uh, with the goal of creating this uh, multinational multicultural paradise where everyone would love each other and, and frankly everyone lives in a state where they expect uh, at some point there will be another war. Kosovo is very similar. Uh, again, all of these interventions had ideological goals. Military was power was used because it was available. The notion of having a national strategy that is tied to concrete interests, which is the case with Mr. Putin, is something that eludes us. So when you look at this new document, you have the usual platitudes. We're, we are going to continue to promote democracy and do good in the world, even though wherever we have promoted democracy, most recently in Libya uh, or Yemen or Iraq or Afghanistan, it's been an abysmal failure because the foundations for it didn't exist. And also because we, we always lose sight of the fact that we are foreigners wherever we go. We expect to be welcomed with open arms. A friend of mine uh, put it very well during the Kosovo Air Campaign. Uh, we like to bomb everyone in the morning and then send over coffee and sandwiches in the afternoon and assume everything's going to be fine. Things don't work that way. So in many respects, we've kind of reaped the whirlwind, as we see now in the Middle East, setting in motion forces over which we have no control. But there is no sense in this particular document that uh, there is a recognition either of the threats that should concern us the most, let alone what we should use military power for. And historically, let's just keep a couple of things in mind. We have an enormous problem today in the Caribbean Basin in Mexico. It's kind of a nexus of terrorism, corruption, criminality, human trafficking. No one, for some reason, wants to talk about it. But it's enormous. And it's not new. We've had trouble with Mexico for over 100 years. And to be perfectly blunt, we frequently handled it badly. We intervened in it and made a mess of it back in 1915, 1916, prolonging what was a destructive civil war in that country. Uh, we intervened, by the way, three times in Cuba, more than any other country in the world, and we see how Cuba has turned out. So it's not necessarily an argument for military intervention, but there is no sober-minded view of Mexico and the continued deterioration of social order, uh, the spreading of criminality, the organized crime state character of Mexico, Altogether, these things threaten us. And so there's no sense of security of our borders, no sense of security of our liberal waters. Uh, people talk about illegal uh, immigrants or migrants. Last year, the largest contingent of illegals pouring into the United States came from China through our ports. Uh, again, these are things that, that, that no one is paying attention to. The national military strategy should address it because the first and foremost mission of the United States Armed Forces is to defend the United States. Secondly, there was a failure to look in a rational way at the situation in Eastern Europe. We're dealing with an anti-status quo state in Moscow, a revanchist state that is absolutely hell-bent and determined to regain its former borders. There isn't much debate about that in Eastern Europe. Even in Washington, most people have come around to understanding that. But there's no sense of that whatsoever. And if that's the case, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we prepared to do? Because if we're not prepared to do much, which would seem to be the case right now, then we should say so. We should tell the Germans, the Poles, 
Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, Finns, Swedes, Danes, you're on your own. Be honest with them. On the other hand, if we do plan to play a role, then we should do something. The biggest mistake we can make in our foreign and security policy is the mistake Britain made in 1939. The Poles showed up in London, and the British promised, we'll help you. But the British were in no position to help the Poles, and we know the rest of the story. Poles, millions of them, died at the hands of the Russians and the Nazis. Do we really want to put those people in that position yet again? Are we going to be honest with them? Because if we're, if we're going to do something, you cannot take the army that you have right now and not only make it smaller, but to continue to convert it to essentially a non-fighting organization designed to police unhappy third world populations. And that's what we're doing. The Air Force is, is not much better off. It's not being vigorously and forcefully led down new paths, in my judgment. We are largely ignoring the, the nuclear, the strategic nuclear weapons issues. And uh, the Navy continues to build lots and lots of surface ships when, let us be perfectly blunt right now, surface ships are increasingly at risk in any future war. The most important defense program the United States has is the Ohio-class replacement. And we need to control the seas for our own security. That control has to come from submarines primarily, and secondly, aircraft and overhead surveillance. But I see no uh, driving strategic understanding of those things. Instead, the administration seems content to let the armed forces not only atrophy with this enormous overhead of hundreds of four-star generals and four-star admirals and four-star whatever, and hundreds of SESs, senior executive service people, in limitless numbers of headquarters all over the place that, that quite frankly are an outcome of the Cold War and are no longer required. It's also a willingness to simply spend uh, on the defense industries to satisfy constituents on the Hill and across the country without a rationale. Hence, we are wasting billions of dollars in a number of different areas on the wrong things. And if you say that to someone in the armed forces that's at the top, they don't listen to you because everyone who's in charge is preeminently concerned with preserving the status quo. Whenever you talk to a service chief, his first mission is to keep what he's got. And he says, well, you, you're going to put me at risk. If I say X, Y, and Z that you just have about national military strategy, about national interests, uh, the Congress will take money away from me. Uh, the president will cut me. On the other hand, you have another problem. When Secretary Gates was Secretary of Defense, he was under pressure to ensure that everyone in the armed forces was dragged into this war on terror. The Secretary of the Navy and the CNO, the Chief of Naval Operations, were told, you've got to get into the war on terror. Well, if you're the Chief of Naval Operations, you look at the world, you say, well, we're already in it. If it were not for us, you couldn't move anything across the seas. We already, we already control the seas. That's our job. No, no, no. You have to come ashore and join the great war on terror. And so they began investing in forces and investing in capabilities that frankly were redundant to uh, augment the Marines and, and the Army. The same thing was going on in the Air Force. We have lots of UCAVs, thousands of them, of these unmanned aerial vehicles. The problem is that most of them are very low flying and very slow and easily shot down in a war with anybody who can fight back. But we built those for the great war on terror. We have wasted billions on armored trucks called MRAPs that are now sitting in junkyards. 
we, we over-invested in the wrong things, under-invested in the right things, and now we have no strategic formula to take us into the future. Give us some ideas on some of the right things to invest in. And put it in the context of the recent announcement that we're reducing the Army by 40,000 soldiers. Well, first of all, numbers matter. Can you, can you actually extract more fighting power from a new reorganized army? The answer is yes. But numbers matter in a, in a way that may not be obvious to many of your listeners. We are a great power. We like to think of ourselves as a superpower. I would argue that we are still the preeminent great power. The notion of superpowers, I think, is a bit passe, and I, I would drop it. And, and frankly, I don't think it serves our interests. So we are probably the preeminent great power today the way Great Britain was in 1900 at the beginning of the 20th century. We're very similar today at the beginning of the 21st century. Much of that uh, great power rests on the resources of our economy, our position in the world, because we are midway between Asia and Europe, the crossroads, the ideal position to make money, to be blunt, much as Rome was at the center of the Mediterranean for the same reason. And we're also at the center because we've enjoyed a certain technological lead, which is rapidly eroding, by the way, in many areas. But when you talk about an army and you tell your allies uh, in Eastern Europe that, yes, we're going to come to your aid if there's a crisis or a conflict, but, oh, by the way, the size of the army, the numbers are falling below 500,000 to 450,000. We may cut them further to 420 or even further if we desire. If you're the Polish foreign minister, the Polish defense minister, uh, or the Lithuanian defense minister, or the, even the fin, Finnish defense minister who is not formally allied with us, he looks at that and says, in a conflict or a crisis, you've got to be able to put 100,000 men in a mobile armored corps with massive quantities of rocket artillery and long-range strike systems on the ground in eastern Poland in 30 to 45 days, or you're of no use to us. You can't do that when you reduce the army below 500,000. So again, if we are going to remain engaged in Europe, if we are going to lead NATO, if we are going to try and deter Mr. Putin from regaining his former borders because we think that's a bad thing, I happen to think it's not a good thing, certainly I'm sympathetic to the Ukrainians, I'm sympathetic to any of the peoples that have lived under Soviet and Russian occupation and their desire for independence and freedom. But we've got to have the wherewithal to do something because if you turn to the Polish defense minister, well, don't worry, we, you know, we've got the fleet in the Baltic, in the North Sea. He looks at you and he says, that's nice, I don't see them. What difference are they going to make to the, the, to the Russian army that's going to come barreling across Ukraine at a, with 150 to 200,000 men and several thousand tanks? Well, you know, we've got the U.S. Air Force. And he'll quickly turn to you and say, yes, and the Air Force can fly in, and it can fly out just as rapidly. And he said they can certainly fly into these airfields, and they can be greeted on the ground by Russian tanks that will be at the airfields before they arrive. So my point is, when it comes to the Army, you have to have a real Army. The number 500,000 commands respect and credibility. When you drop below 500,000, your allies question your seriousness. So... Do you then suggest that we increase the number to a minimum of 500,000 and we do what in terms of Eastern Europe? Well, first of all, the Army is an industrial age dinosaur. 
it is the worst example of anything anyone in the private sector could point to in corporate America. It's far worse than IBM was. Uh, it's, it's far worse than AT&T. And it is desperately in need of a fundamental overhaul and reorganization and reform. So let me preface my remarks by saying that. That should happen up front. That's what Putin did. He reduced the size of his force. He reformed and reorganized it, re-equipped it, and is now expanding it. So in other words, he's building on a new modern foundation. We need to build on a new modern foundation. I see no evidence for any anyone in this administration, and very little evidence from anyone on the Hill, that they understand that requirement. It, we've all been to Congress to talk to members of the House and the Senate, and everyone, particularly on the right, fancies themselves a businessman. Oh, I understand business. I understand the free market. I understand how these things are. Well, that's nice, but you need to understand something about the military. And when you begin to try and explain it to them using these analogies, they're kind of horrified because they've never been in the military. And they think, well, as a civilian, how could I possibly speak to this general and tell him that things need to change? That just as we have taken corporate boards that once had 50 members and now only have 10, and we've eliminated intermediate managerial levels and boards that we no longer needed, you need to do the same thing in the military. And he's going to stand in front of you with this chest of medals, most of which were absolutely meaningless in terms of combat and killing anybody. And he's going to say, well, in my considered military judgment, you're wrong, Congressman. Senator, you just can't do that. And if you back down, you're lost. And thus far, people have been willing to back down. We have to put an end to that. Because it doesn't matter whether the Republicans or the Democrats or whoever ends up running the show uh, in 2016, 2017. We've got to do this. It's very important. And you can't reform and reorganize the whole Defense Department simultaneously. You've got to start somewhere. Putin started with the Army. He's now working primarily with a submarine force and secondarily with the rocket forces now. We've got to do the same thing. Reform the army, as you're suggesting, and as I've read that you've spoken, you've written about and spoken about, um, isn't it then possible to go below 500,000? You can, uh, and I would argue that you should, perhaps temporarily, in order to reform and reorganize. But then you should try to regain that 500,000 level for the psychological reasons. And again, great powers maintain great armed forces. Now they don't have to maintain excessive armed forces but they have to maintain great armed forces. When a great power systematically disarms itself, it invites attack. We don't want to do that. We did that in the 1930s. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons that we were attacked was that people looked specifically at the United States Army. And they said, well, the Army, they've only got 200,000 men in the Army. These people can't possibly fight. Now, we all congratulate ourselves that we were this heroic nation that came back in 1943 and 44 with six million men in the army, we quote-unquote won the war. Well, here's the truth, folks. Other people fought for years before we arrived on the scene. The war actually began in 1939. Millions of people died. Millions of soldiers fought. British, French, German, Russian, Japanese, Italian. All sorts of people were engaged. Our allies, our allies, the people that were on our side, actually fought for years before we arrived. Russians now admit to at least 40 million dead, uh, and probably a lot more. Uh, no one has ever told the truth about casualties, but least of all the communists, and for good reasons. They, they would have had enormous problems had they done so. 
So without the British and the French, we, we all cast aspersions on the honor of the French, but we forget that 90 to 100,000 Frenchmen died defending France in 1940. That's not a small inconsequential number. Thousands more fought the Japanese. The, the point is, where are these allies who are going to fight for years before we show up? The answer is, they're not there. So if they are going to survive at all against a determined assault by a dangerous enemy like Putin, we've got to be there. We can't show up in three or four years. We have to be there before the assault occurs. That doesn't mean stationing forces. It means maintaining forces in readiness on a rotational basis that are routinely exercised on maneuvers in the various areas that we think are important. By the way, our, our relationship with Vietnam is improving. It's not as good, by the way, uh, as it should be. Uh, Japan is actually the uh, most popular country in Southeast Asia right now for the Vietnamese, Indonesians, Malaysians, even the Filipinos. They're all buying Japanese equipment and they're, the Japanese are working with them, training with them. Uh, the Japanese do not question their internal policies the way we do. So they don't have to worry about being uh, receiving a black eye for human rights violations or not being sufficiently democratic. But the Vietnamese are concerned about the possibility that the Chinese may decide someday to come back to Vietnam the way they did before. The question is, what would we do in that, in that case? What could we send? When you begin to rebuild and reorganize and reform your army, you have to look at the things not only that you need, but what your allies want you to bring that are critical. Let me, let me explain this. What do we bring? We bring tremendous intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance capabilities, thanks to our space-based assets, thanks to our high-tech uh, surveillance capabilities. We also bring tremendous strike assets. And when I'm, when I'm talking about strike, I'm talking about primarily aerospace and naval, but also ground, the ability to uh, launch volumes of fire with great accuracy against the enemy. We can bring mobile armored firepower, superior mobile armored firepower, better equipment than anybody else. We also have a supremely effective logistical structure. Our logisticians are first rate. We can come in and build up a logistical structure that will support not only ourselves, but also our allies potentially by incorporating them in it. Those are the things that they're looking for. Those are the things that we have to be able to, to send forward. And remember, when I say strike, I'm also including theater missile defense. No one else could show up with you know, 16 battalions of Patriot missiles, uh, additional radars, and space-based uh, connectivity in order to defeat incoming missiles. So these things are vitally important and essential. What they don't need from us are large numbers of infantrymen. They've got them. They have millions of infantrymen. So one of the things that we have to do, particularly after the last 12 years, is re-examine where we're putting our capital. And right now, the United States Army, about two-thirds of the 80 or 90,000 combat troops look a lot like the Marine Corps. We don't need two Marine Corps. We've already got one of those. And remember, the Marine Corps is pri primarily designed not to fight capable nation-state adversaries, but to carry out limited expeditionary operations on the periphery of the Eurasian landmass, Africa, uh, parts of the Middle East, uh, parts of Southeast Asia and the South Pacific, maybe Latin America. But they're not designed to come ashore and operate like an army. They're not designed to transform 
the strategic situation. So we don't need another Marine Corps, which means that we've got to have an army that has those strike assets, that theater missile defense capability, the mobile armored force that is unlike anything anybody else owns. It was pointed out recently the German army, which is almost non-existent at this point, was down to 300 tanks. The Germans are trying to buy tanks back from people they've sold tanks to. So the great German army of uh, 400,000, 500,000 men from the 1980s, 1990s with some of the finest equipment in the world doesn't exist. That army has to be rebuilt, perhaps not to the same level as it was before, but it has to be sufficiently robust to deter anybody from attacking. And it has to be sufficiently robust and capable so that it can operate with us. The Poles know this. The Polish foreign minister stood up a few months ago and said, I recognize the audience will be shocked because I'm the foreign minister of Poland. And I'm here today to advocate for a German army. Where is the German army? We need the German army. Well, he was right. But he's also well aware of what we're doing today to the United States Army. And that is a, a no-change force rooted in 1942 structure and Cold War policies that is too small, too weak to fight anybody decisively anywhere. Wow. On that note, Doug, I think we'll uh, end, end this and call this part one. Because <laughs> um, there's a lot more that i like to dig in on. Because in the article you talk about the Asia pivot, you talk about the Middle East, and maybe we'll have you back, hopefully in the near future, to continue this conversation. And there are particular weapon systems I'd like you to address, like the F-35 and, and the Toral Combat Ship and things like that. But we'll say that for another day. Uh, you've written a couple books. You have a website. Yeah, I, I mean, you can Google my name. Uh, that will certainly bring it up. There's also uh, futuredefense.com is uh, the website. And I've got a new book coming out next year called Margin of Victory from Naval Institute Press that addresses a lot of these things and goes back through the 20th century, through warfare from 1914 to 1991, to look at what worked and what didn't, what kinds of decisions were made strategically that influenced the outcome. And I think a lot of people will find it very interesting and enjoyable. Great. Thanks, Doug. Right.